When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, thank you very much. As it is so often possible to say at Intelligence Squared events, I think this is probably the coolest evening in London tonight. We are exactly... um, Uh, We are very, very lucky to uh, be here with these two folks who I'm going to introduce in a second. Making the complicated simple is something that I have a great personal interest in. In my medical school final, in the oral part of it, the most terrifying part because there's a patient sitting next to you and because you might fail and not be a doctor, the final question they asked me is, what is a hiccup? And I was reminded of this because on Saturday at the Bath Children's Literature Festival I agreed to take some questions and a six-year-old girl asked me what is a hiccup and I'll tell you what I told her which is that I didn't know then and I don't know now and, and that is one of the simplest things we can encounter it is a simple repetitive circuit in our brains it seems to be something to do with our evolution from tadpoles that's the best answer we've got we are, we are nevertheless committed to letting you leave with new, real knowledge, and these guys are going to do the heavy lifting for me. We are now living at a moment of extreme specialisation. I often think of taking a time machine back 500 years ago, and it would have been possible to meet people who did know just about all there was to be known. Um, although, if I had gone back, I would not know anything about the world 500 years ago. Um, but now, it would be very hard to find, probably impossible to find, an individual who could even explain in detail the complete workings of the smartphones we almost all carry. And even if there was an engineer at Apple or at Samsung who could explain both how the microchip worked and how the screen worked, it is unlikely that same person could describe the effects of that phone on our brains or indeed the effects of mining coltan in Congo on the Congolese people. So the range of knowledge that now exists in the world is very vast. And so we're extremely lucky to have two of the best people in the world to help us understand how we might acquire that knowledge, the range of knowledge, and who have been so amazing at popularizing it. Um, Randall Monroe, uh, to my right, is the creator of webcomic XKCD. And uh, if you don't know, I would imagine everyone in the room knows it. If you don't know it, it is just a complete delight. It is as though Stephen Hawking has written Calvin and Hobbes. It is an absolute (laughs) treat. He is a former NASA roboticist, which he insists is not as glamorous as it sounds, although he did work on real robots, not just a coffee machine. Um, I would say that he has persuaded more people than any other human on Earth to play chess on roller coasters. So that that record is up for grabs if you're interested. Um, He invented geohashing. 
um, a, a sport driven by its pointlessness. Um, incredibly beautiful comics like Click and, Dra Click and Dragon Time in which you can, you can kind of interact. And importantly for this evening, he's the author of What If and Thing Explainer, which will be on sale um, in the lobby afterwards and which are, are fabulous. And he's going to talk a bit more about Thing Explainer. Um, on my left is Marcus de Sotoy. Um, he is familiar with XKCD and indeed references um, some of those comics in one of his latest books. Um, he is a fellow of New College Oxford, um, was a fellow of All, Co All Souls College Oxford and New College Oxford, and I believe is aiming to complete the set before he retires. He is the Simone Professor of the Public Understanding of Science, the second person, only the second person to have held that chair. Um, extraordinarily, he is also, at the same time, a professor of mathematics at Oxford and does real maths with real graduate students, which is, um, to my mind, extraordinary. He's presented, of course, as you will all know, many television and radio programs, including um, uh, The Story of Maths, and um, his, his, uh, his most recent book is How to Count to Infinity. So um, my interest, I suppose, in science and communicating science and the way that science interacts with our lives is driven by the fact that I'm an ident identical twin. And I've always been interested in the role in which genetic plays in my life and my destiny. But I was wondering from each of you, if I can start with you, Randall, where did, where did your interest in science and in communicating science begin? Well, um, you, when, you, when you mentioned this, this, uh, that you were wondering about this, I started thinking back to the things that had, that had puzzled me the most as a kid. Um, and one of the first things I remember is when I had to sit somewhere quietly for a long time, I think my father would give me one of his like, business pens to play with, um, just so I could, I could unscrew it, take it apart, put it back together, um, <clears throat> just something to uh, occupy the time. And there's the little mechanism in it that you press the thumb and it clicks, and the pen comes out, but then you press it again the same way and the pen comes back in. And that part of the mechanism I couldn't take apart. So I, I had to just guess how it worked. Um, and then when it came time to, to write Thing Explainer, I included... I was like, I'm going to draw a diagram of how that thing works. And I think it might be the hardest thing to explain yeah. in the whole book. <laughs> it's a really simple little mechanism. But it's like, it works. Why does it work? It works because it's shaped like that. Why is it shaped like that? Well, that's what works for that. Like, there's no, there's no way to simplify it any further. It's just the thing shaped like that. Um, and so I feel like that's almost been the most, <laughs> the most challenging thing in there. Uh, and still one of the hardest things to explain. I could usually get the pen apart and then not reassemble it to my father's yeah, irritation. Yeah. Um, oh, that's lovely. Um, Marcus, how about you? Well, it was a teacher who pulled me uh, out of the class uh, when I was about 12 or 13, a maths teacher. Um, uh, he took me around the back of the maths block. Uh, I thought, oh, I'm really in trouble now. Sort of, uh, um, uh, but then he said, uh, it's used to be where he smoked his break time cigar. And, um, uh, and he said, I think you should find out what maths is really about, because it's not what we're doing in the classroom. And he recommended a few books to me, um, which were kind of like he gave me this um, key to this secret garden, which I'm, I still don't understand even today why we don't uh, show everyone this amazing garden. So, and one book in particular was called um, A Mathematician's Apology by a Cambridge mathematician called G.H. Hardy. Um, uh, and it was about being a mathematician, and, and um, he describes it in such a creative way that it's like a creative artist rather than a kind of useful scientist. Um, and that really appealed to me at the time because I was learning the trumpet and I was enjoying kind of creative arts. And I felt that at that point that maths 
was this nice bridge between being creative but still being the language of science. There was one proof in there which really just blew my mind, which was um, he showed with just a finite amount of argument why you can show that prime numbers, these indivisible numbers, that they go on forever. And and it, it didn't show you how to find them. We still don't know. It's our biggest unsolved problem is trying to find where these primes are. But with just a small little bit of argument, which only depends on uh, primary school mathematics, basically, um, you're able to conceive of the infinite. And that just blew my mind. And and that's when I realized, yeah, I want to come up with stories like that. So, Randall, can you you talk... You you mentioned that that page with, with the pen. It's got a pen and a pencil. And you talk about the origins of ink. And you talk about the mechanism and the kinds of wood that are in a pencil. And you do it all in language that is very extraordinary for a reason that I guess I'll let you explain. But can you talk us through the thing explainer and what it is? Sure. Um, well, so I, uh, th- I think that uh, 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 I've... So I realize I've spent a lot, of my t- a lot of my life worrying about sounding like I don't know what I'm talking about. And, and I think this is, this is probably a familiar experience to anyone who's, uh, you know been in any kind of an academic organization, for starters, um, especially, you know, if you worry that you don't really belong. Um, and, and it's uh, something that one of the ways it manifests is by being really picky about language. Uh, and, and so when you learn a complicated word for something that is a little bit more specific than a simple word, it's really easy to um, start jumping in to correct people when they use the, the simpler word. And... It, and part of that is because you say, well, actually, you're talking about this, this more complicated thing. But I think part of it is that you just, that, you know, for me, that comes from um, just wanting to show that I know things. So, like, if, for example, the, uh, when I was a kid, I learned the Earth is a sphere. You know, it's round. And then later I learned the, the phrase oblate spheroid, which is the slightly more complicated word for the shape of the Earth, which is... It's not quite a sphere, it's a little squashed in the middle because it's spinning and so it's flinging itself outward. And then that would drive me to um, uh, jump in and correct people when I heard them say sphere. <laughs> you know, well, actually, the Earth is an oblate spheroid. And, 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 I, and, and so um, when, uh, you know, doing a, a, a physics degree, doing, you know, anytime I hang out with a bunch of people where I'm worried I'm not as smart as them, it, I realized it made me do that more often, um, which sort of has the, the unfortunate side effect of, of making them then feel like, oh, no, he doesn't think I'm smart. I'd better jump in and correct him next chance I get. <laughs> and then we get this vicious cycle going of people correcting each other on things, whether or not it has anything to do with, you know, whether the distinctions are important. Um, and so what I, what I, uh, um, I started on this project to illustrate stuff using only simple words. At first I was just doing it because I liked coming up with dumb names for things. Um, so I, I started drawing these, uh, simple diagram, these diagrams of complicated things and I started with trying to uh, illustrate the Saturn V rocket. And, and I called it the... Uh, so I decided to try to label it using only really common words. And so I got a list of the thousand most common words that I assembled. And so I couldn't say NASA, Saturn, rocket, spacecraft, launch vehicle, whatever. Um, instead, so I called it... And I called it, instead of the Saturn V, the Upgoer V. And instead of NASA, I said it was by, built by the U.S. space team. Um, 
And, and then I went through trying to label all the different parts. And, uh, and what I found was it was fun to come up with kind of dumb names for things like, you know, instead of the command module, it's like, well, this is the people box. You know, this is where the people sit. <laughs> and then instead of the, the launch abort and launch escape system, it was the, this is the thing to lift the people away really fast if there's a problem and everything is on fire. Um, <laughs> and they decide not to go to space. And then at the bottom of the rocket, I, uh, I labeled it, lots of fire comes out of this end. Um, instead of, you know, exhaust nacelles and, and so forth. Um, and, then, uh, and then I had a note that said, this end should be pointed toward the ground if you want to go to space. <laughs> and if it starts pointing towards space, then you're having a bad problem and you will not go to space today. Um, and I had fun with these labels, but, um, but what I really found was uh, uh, that... It, then I started trying to label all of the different tanks of fuel... And I was like, well, here's, here's, the, uh, here's the oxygen tank. Okay, well, what's, well I can't say oxygen. Um, what about, here's the air tank. You know, but it's, it, this, is, this is a tank full of, this is full of air, but it's not the kind of air, it's just, it's the kind of air that you breathe, very cold, but just the part of it that you need to breathe, not the other stuff that's in the air. And then for the helium tank, I was like, well, this is, uh, th- these are full of the kind of air that makes your voice sound funny. Um, and then there's a tank of what's basically kerosene. And I said, okay, well, this is the stuff that they used to burn in lights to, uh, to make light before we had power, and so on. And, and it was really fun trying to figure out what's an oblique way to describe this without using the name for it. And then, um, and then I went through a bunch of other uh, 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 kind of simple diagrams. And if you want to just sort of flip through um, uh, briefly, but you know, so I did the periodic table, trying to describe every element in some, in some simple way without using the name of the element, except for gold, which that did make my list. So I got to just call gold, gold, and all the other ones, I couldn't use their names. Um, and, then, uh, and then I did a few other diagrams of, um, we can do the next, uh, you know, of how the internal organs are connected, which I called the bags of stuff inside you. And, uh, and the, you know, boxes that make clothes smell better, like dryers and so on. Um, and then the the uh, human cell, which I think was maybe the most challenging uh, other than maybe that pen-click mechanism. Um, so these are the tiny bags of water that you're made of. And, and, uh, uh, and then lastly, I did the tree of life, where I got to then go back to just giving silly names to things, um, where I got to describe all these silly animals, like uh, uh, I called porcupines pointy cats. Um, and, then, and then so I got to you know, run through different... Uh, Labels. This is the last illustration in the book, if you want to put it there. <laughs> and then um, I think my favorite, uh, my favorite, my favorite uh, uh, name that I gave to anything was I called bats. Um, I called them skin birds, which, which I like because it's um, it's wrong in sort of every specific way. Like it's bats are not birds, and birds also have skin, so this doesn't even distinguish them from birds. <laughs> but I feel like it still captures the essence of what a bat is. But, um, but what was really, really, enter- uh, really sort of surprising about this exercise was that, like, for anyone who's done physics, you'll appreciate, I had the word weight on my list, but I didn't have the word mass. And that is, like, the number one thing that I learned to be pedantic about. And I had to let go of it. I just had to call them all weight. Um, and every time I did it, I could hear in the back of my head all my fellow students saying, well, actually, you know... <laughs> 
and 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 I had to say, well, too bad. I'm calling it all weight here, and they have to understand. You know, people will just just understand. I'm not using exactly the you know the specific word here, but most of the time, it turned out it didn't matter. Um, and when it did, I could explain why it mattered. Um, and and that was a really freeing experience because I've like I, I've struggled with that. You know. And I didn't realize how much of that came from insecurity of, but if I say this, someone might think I don't know this. I'd better say the complicated thing just to, just to, just to clarify that, even when it really didn't need clarifying. And so I think that that was, um, uh, that, that for me the big lesson was how much, how much of my sort of need to make things complicated came out of just trying to prove myself and how letting go of that made me correct other people less made them feel less insecure, made them feel like they needed to correct me less and make me feel less insecure. And then we both just got to share the things that we know in the terms that, that were easiest to explain them, you know, whether that's simple or complicated words. And that was a really good lesson. And in the process, I got to give a whole bunch of animals really dumb names. And, uh, and uh, yeah, and I hope, I hope you enjoy uh, uh, browsing through that. <laughs> oh, that's a lovely explanation of the, of the book. Um, it, it's particularly horrifying reading it as a doctor because when you go to medical school, one of the few achievements... My first ever boss described... Uh, he turned to me at the end of my first job and he said, um, this is a first-class job for a second-class brain, Alex. And um, sorry if there are any doctors in the audience. But you le- you, so you learn enough words at medical school um, that is the equivalent of learning a new language. And then we deploy these words at patients in ways that seem virtually destined to confuse them. I don't know if there's anyone in the audience who's received a diagnosis of palmar rubra erythema. Um, but when you explain that to patients in clinic, you usually end with the explanation that is simply the Greek for red hands. Um, and it doesn't explain anything. We don't know why it happens. So um, gynecomastia is the other one. It just means breast like a woman. But if you put it in Greek, it's, I guess it's a bit more dignified. Um, so I think, I think med- medicine is designed... I mean, medicine's a monopoly. It's, it's designed um, in some way to hold on to a body of knowledge and to extract money from someone by using that knowledge um, that no one else is sort of allowed to have or allowed to use. But, but Marcus, do you... What, I, I just wonder... I mean, I know, I, know, I know you know Randall's work. What do you make of this attempt to do everything even cell biology to the space program in a thousand words. Well, I think it sends out a really important message, which all of this complicated stuff, um, you know, if you open a, a mathematical journal, it just looks impenetrable. But actually behind it is always some reduction. That all of these complicated formulas were once something that was something simpler expressed in words, which were then expressed in even simpler things. So I think it actually... Um, highlights that all of science basically is built like a pyramid um, and at its base are, are, are the simple things that we understand around us. Um, but I must say that one of the um, insights I had when I was doing my doctorate, um, I had this very complicated structure and I was describing it in the words that I knew. Uh, and, and it was just, it came out as kind of a, a, a as as funny as your kind of descriptions of things because I just kept on having to write, it's this which has this property, blah, 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 blah. And my PhD supervisor said, give it a name. And it was amazingly empowering, the ability to name something. I gave it a name and then suddenly things simplified in that way. So when you're actually creating new science, that ability to name a new structure is almost 
uh, the, the fact that you've seen something new, that it needs a name. I mean, why, you know, black and white, suddenly we see, it was like seeing the world in colour, and I needed a name to distinguish it from something which didn't have these properties. So um, or, or, or I think what Randall's done is, is really fascinating because it shows even a very complicated mathematical paper, ultimately, you can do what Randall has done with that. Um, Fermat's last theorem, the proof of Fermat's last you could write in, in just... Um, well, you, you, you didn't allow yourself a thousand, did you? So it was like ten hundred, I think. Right, right. Well, yeah. the word thousand didn't make the cut. Yeah, exactly. So, so I have to say, <laughs> this is the ten hundred <laughs> most common words. <laughs> but I, I think that's a very interesting example, the way numbers work. Because, you know, the, uh, the Romans, the Egyptians, they invented new symbols for each new number. So um, the hieroglyphics. And it was the, um, the Babylonians who had this... Uh, well, actually, we don't need new symbols all the time. Because we can use these small number of symbols to just do any number as large as we want. And so um, that moment when you realise, actually, I don't need all of this complicated stuff. I can do it just as we do now, do the numbers from zero to nine. I can count to infinity with the symbols from zero to nine. So whilst the Egyptians would have had to have come up with a, yet another complicated new name for the next thing with another zero on. Well, I know that they've named an asteroid after you, Randall. Is, did you, when you were choosing names, did you name them after people you admired or after yourself? Or you? Well, actually, I, no, this, this uh, was a very boring sort of name. But I, I did actually, um, I did a project where I actually discovered my greatest um, achievement, as far as I'm concerned, is what I want on my gravestone, is the discovery of some new symmetrical objects in hyperspace, which connect to some really weird bit of mathematics called elliptic curves. But I actually created infinitely many of these, and I thought, they're not really useful for anything. So I thought, well, let's make them useful. So I started a charity project. I support a, an educational charity in Guatemala, which gets kids off the street and into education, empowers them, their family gets health care, uh, housing, if they stay in education. Um, so I offered these groups, like, just like asteroids, you can name asteroids. I, I said, okay, you can name these symmetrical objects if you donate to my charity. Um, and, and so I've, I've, sold, I've, I've, I've sold a lot of these groups, and the charity is, um, you know, all of these kids in Guatemala are in, are in education thanks to the naming of these kind of things, which symmetrical objects which you can't they, physically they see. They only exist in the minds of a small number of elite yeah. mathematicians. Exactly. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but you can force yourself into that professor's brain if you spend enough money in Well, Guatemala. the wonderful thing about an asteroid, you see, uh, my thing's opposed to an asteroid. Your asteroid's going to crash into something, disintegrate, decay. Um, it won't be there in, like, millions of years. My mathematical... Yeah, right, <laughs> my mathematical object will be there forever because mathematics, <laughs> once you create it, is immortal. So, um, yeah, you know... For sheer hubris, you probably win. <laughs> unless, unless Randall's one hits Earth, and then... Oh, well, yeah, then, then there won't be anybody so, Then to, he wins, really, yeah. I suppose, in, in, that, in that some way. The, the first thing I looked up when I learned, because it turns out there's... Um, I, not, to, not to underplay the, the, the significance of that, but there, it turns out there are a lot of asteroids. <laughs> um, Don't and, worry, I've got infinitely many know, symmetrical right, objects. Right, so right. That's well, right. The thing is, as, you get, as your size threshold gets smaller and smaller, you really do have a virtually infinite number of uh, asteroids to name. So, like... Sooner or later, that's going to exceed the number of people in the world. But um, the, the, the first thing I did was I quick... I, they said, here's, you know, you, for some reason, this, I think it was like my mom texted me. I was like, apparently they've named this asteroid after you. Um, but, so my first thing I did was look up how, what its diameter was and then how much damage it would do if we redirected it toward Earth. <laughs> and um, the good news, I think, is that it would be large enough to cause a serious uh, mass extinction or uh, something. <laughs> and... and 
I don't know why. It's like a real, but it's like a real asteroid. That's yeah, like yeah, a deep impact kind of an asteroid. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. the the. Um, you're not just going to be a shooting star. That yeah, no, but, but I was really hoping. But it turns out they really don't collide very often. It's, it's probably going to be out there until at least the sun goes, uh, goes nova. Um, so that's you. sort of disappointing. <laughs> Unless someone launches an operation to, to you know, use a tether or some rockets to change its orbit. And I'm not saying you should do this. But <laughs> we'd, we'd look to you. So, look, we've got, we've got a couple of challenges for both of you. Can I start with you, Randall? Sure. Uh, we, the, Randall has um, three two-minute challenges. Um, you have to explain okay. um, in two minutes each, and I think we'll just let you do them. We might pause for applause, depending on how well you do, but we'll basically let you do them, and then we'll see what we think at the end. Um, your, your challenges are a jet engine, mm-hmm. the Mars rover, and a nuclear power station. Two minutes each. Okay, well, so, so uh, jet engines are really strange. Um, the simplest kind of uh, fire-based rocket you can have is you just burn oxygen and fuel, and it shoots out the back, and that's a rocket. Um, then jet engines have the idea of using the air that's coming in and compressing it with, uh, you know, with a fan into a chamber, setting it on fire with some fuel and having it shoot out the back. And as it shoots out the back, it spins some, uh, some fan blades, you know, some turbines, which is what spins the, the fan in the front to pull more air in. Um, when you're going fast enough, the air is coming in pretty fast already, which helps. Then the, and that is how a, a turbojet engine works, which is what a lot of the older uh, jets and some older private jets use. They, and the reason it's not like pulling yourself up by your shoes to have the fuel spin a propeller, which spins the, the propeller in the front that pulls in more fuel, which seems a little bit like cheating. The reason that works <laughs> is that you can, um, uh, that when you're burning the fuel, it superheats it and shoots it out the back faster than it came in. And so then you can use that as it's going out, use some of its energy to spin, you know, the propeller, the thing in the back, which is just a small portion of the energy coming out, which spins the one in the front to bring in more. Um, so that's what's inside a turbojet. A turbofan engine is a weird counterintuitive add-on to this, which is you've got this, this engine here, which pulls air in, heats it up, shoots it out the back, and uses that to spin a turbine you know, that, that keeps the whole thing running. Um, that also, what you do for a turbofan is you have it also power a larger fan in the front, that not only pulls the air through, but also acts like a normal propeller. And that's the key to a turbofan engine, is it, it also blows air past around the whole thing, um, and that propels the plane just like a normal propeller. But it turns out, just if you, if you build this, that that works more efficiently. Um, and that's why that's what we use to power all of our airplanes. Wow. Okay, so, that, was, that was exactly two minutes. Mm-hmm. That was extraordinary. Okay. Wow. Okay. 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 But he's got he's got two to go. <laughs> um, so the next one was the, the Mars rover. Mars rover. Yeah. Um, so so it turns out so we have different kinds of rocks. Some of them are radioactive, which means they just randomly decay into uh, uh, and give off energy. And this happens just steadily. If you make a bunch of plutonium 
over the course of, uh, uh, you know, 100 years, it will slowly decay, releasing energy. And the amount of energy it releases is tremendous. If you get it to release it all at once, it's enough to, you know, destroy a city. But if you just leave it sitting there, these uh, particular isotopes, uh, forms of plutonium, it'll just steadily decay over that time, releasing a huge amount of heat. Um, so to, um, when we need to send a rover to Mars, you can power it by solar panels, but they get covered in dust, and they only produce so much power, and, uh, and that's not enough to keep a really large rover running for a long period of time. So what we do is we take a chunk of this plutonium. There's no nuclear reactor or anything. It's just a hot, really hot, because it's decaying all the time. And then, ideally using gloves, probably, you put it in a box. Um, don't actually do this until you've checked with the local authorities. Um, but then, then, and then that box uh, takes the heat and converts that through uh, 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 an electrical process, and it converts that into electricity, and it produces... Um, the, there are about, uh, about several thousand watts of heat produced, which it converts into like a, a couple hundred watts of electricity, and, um, uh, uh, and, uh, and then that powers a whole bunch of different random instruments that they've bolted onto this uh, rover, kind of randomly, and it then uses that power to roll itself around, run the instruments, look at things, and shoot lasers at the ground and see what happens. Wow. So you could almost build a Mars rover at the end of that if you, if you had permission. You, you will hear from a bunch of international uh, uh, criminal authorities if you try to stockpile plutonium. <laughs> at least Westminster uh, Council. Um, yeah. Okay, lovely. Third one, nuclear power station. Uh, nuclear power station. So the, the big difference between the, the Mars rover and the, the nuclear power station is so there's, um, there are types of uranium where it, it decays and gives off these little particles... Um, and most of the time, and this, and, but it does it very slowly. So this, these are rocks, you know, metal that's not even warm to the touch usually. But, um, and it'll decay over billions of years. But it has a, there are a few forms of it where it has a really unusual property, which is the stuff that it gives off, if it hits more of itself, it triggers that decay instead of having to wait for it to happen spontaneously. Now, usually you don't have enough of it in one place. Uh, if you have a small amount of it, it'll just all the little uh, neutrons and stuff that it's giving off will shoot out of it and hit people and, you know, cause health problems. But if you bring more of it together, it will trigger more of those uh, neutrons to be released, which then triggers more decay, which triggers more decay, which, and, and if you bring too much together, you get the nuclear bomb that destroys the city. But if you bring it just close enough together that you get, um, you can get it to to elevate the rate at which these decays are happening and the energy give it, being given off without destroying a city. And then you do that very carefully, controlling that reaction, and then you just use it to run an ordinary steam engine, effectively. You use it to heat up water, and the water turns a turbine, and then, um, and then that generates electricity. You do have to be careful, though. Um, you need the water to carry away this heat, and it produces so much heat that that actually becomes a problem. So you have to sit it next to a gigantic body of water so you can keep pumping water in and that water never gets near the reactor itself. There's a couple of different closed loops, but then you are constantly taking away the seat and turning it into electricity as fast as you can. And then if, uh, if anything goes wrong, that can be a problem. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, round of applause. Yeah. 
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv the events calendar is filling up here at intelligence squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and on-stage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. I, I would like to ask, we're going to land on your questions in a second, but I'm just curious, when you are explaining the public when you are communicating with people what, what are you both trying to inspire in them what do you want them to achieve when that little girl asked me about the hiccup she was very curious about herself but knowing about hiccups at least for all of human history we have not really suffered for lack of that knowledge and they did let me pass my medical school exam um, so what are you trying to achieve with with your books with your writing what, what do you hope people will get out of it um, I don't know I, when, I, when I'm writing I, I always think about like, if I were going back in time to when I didn't know this thing and I was frustrated by trying to understand it, what's, like, the, the, the kind of cliff's notes or the, the cheat sheet I would want to give myself so that I could skip all of the confusion and try to get to the, uh, and get to the end? Um, and so it's like, I'll, I'll, when it finally clicks for me, I'm really excited to have a way of thinking about it that makes everything make sense. And I think about other people, I'm like, oh, if, if someone else, I imagine someone else frustrated by the same thing that frustrated me, and I'm like, oh, I want to show them. I've got, I've got the answer here. I, I mean, and, and maybe that's just a form of, I found a really cool thing, I've got to go tell everyone about it, which, you know, might really be what's at the heart of it, too. But you're at the heart of that, then, you, yeah. you're assuming curiosity. You're saying, look, I'm sure you're interested in the world. I'm sure you want to know. Well, if they're not, they'll walk away. Yeah. It'll be pretty clear. Yeah. Someone's <laughs> here tonight. So you have, then, that idea of going, okay, well, if you're interested, I will, I will help you. Yeah, yeah. Or, or if you're not, but you're, you know, willing to tolerate things and I'm not perceptive enough to pick up that you... <laughs> really like me to stop talking. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm, 
Well, yeah, I think you, that, for me, that's one of the, the big challenges, is making sure you don't just preach to the converted. Um, uh, because they're a wonderful audience, and they deserve um, uh, being told more and more of these stories. But I think it's also important to, to try and capture those people who think, oh, I'm, I'm not interested in maths or science. Um, and so I think that's why I do a lot of work with creative artists, um, because that's an interesting way in. That, um, As I said, maths is this kind of bridge, I think, between the two. So, um, for example, I've been working with a composer when we've written a piece for String Quartet, which explores mathematical proofs. Um, and uh, the people who will come along to that will perhaps be musicians who will then... Uh, realize, oh, I didn't, I didn't understand that there was all this maths hiding behind the, the music. So, so I think that's important for me. But I think the reason that I, I do this, I think it's twofold. One is um, to pay back that teacher at my, my school. Uh, because, you know, I want to give uh, teachers today a book that they can give their kids that will inspire the next generation. Because if we don't have people wanting to do science, then, you know, all of these unknown theorems we don't know how to solve are going to remain unsolved. But I think the other audience, which is really important, is an adult audience. Because um, science is so important to the way society is evolving that um, if you don't understand the science, and that's why I think, you know, in a way, my professorship is very old school in its title, public understanding. It sounds very one way. Um, it would probably be called uh, engage, science and society yeah. today. But actually, you need understanding to be able to engage in a political debate about what you're going to do with this science. So people need to know what a stem cell is. They need to know what uh, machine learning is. They need to know about nanotechnology to be able to decide, well, what, or, or GM, to be able to know what to do with that. So I think that's why it's so important today that we have a, a, politic, uh, a, a scientifically literate society so we can make informed decisions about the future. I think um, that's a hugely important point, and it's really noticeable in both of your work that it, the importance of, of engaging the public is not of some vague, um, ethereal you know, possibility that you might, you might have an enjoyable experience. It's not merely entertainment. The person who is the best protein folder in the world, at least she was a couple of years ago, um, was a housewife who lives in the Midland in England, no formal scientific training at all, but she works on a gamified version of protein folding. And humans seem to be good enough at recognizing patterns that her brain, just given the raw information of a picture of a protein, was able to discover a more stable configuration. Um, there's huge, vast citizen science projects which are published in serious journals and con contribute serious knowledge. So I think... Um, there's a, there's a huge joy and a huge pleasure in, in all of your work that, that does feel like entertainment, but at the heart of it, it seems to me that we do, we do end up with a better world. Um, with that in mind, um, I think we should get to your questions, since you are the engaged public, the most engaged public. Can we start with number one? Hello, thank you for your um, insights this evening. I'm wondering, how can you teach the public about critical appraisal, is my question. That's a lovely question. Okay, critical appraisal. Number two, where's number two? Hi. So, thank you very much to you both. Um, there's been a lot of research saying that scientists are perceived as warm, uh, or rather trustworthy and competent, but not necessarily warm or coming across as the type of people that can be related to, and apparently that hinders science communication. How do you feel about conveying science? Do you think that a subject is strong enough to stand on its own or that every scientist needs to present themselves as well as their work? Ooh. And is that something we should be considering more when communicating science? The modest witness. I love it. And, it, um, and number three. 
Are there things that you think we shouldn't simplify? Lovely. Okay. Can we... Can we start? Can we start? I think I'll, I'll try and go... Basically, I'm going to start with you, Randall, um, and, and, we'll, and then Marcus, can you kick in, and then we'll start with Marcus. Does that, that makes sense. Um, critical appraisal, Randall. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure... I'm not sure I know what that means. Yeah, I think that's, it, that's that needs my new... to be stuck. I agree. I, I think that needs to be stuck in a 10, 100 uh, sentence. Well, cause, uh... And, and by the way, that's, my, that's been my New Year's resolution since around when I did this book, which was nowhere, nowhere near New Year's. But I've started, when I, whenever anyone uses a phrase or a word that I don't know, especially when it's on a restaurant menu, I just ask what it is, and it's like incredibly freeing. Um, so I recommend you all try this. <laughs> So can you, can you clarify then, using um, the most popular thousand words in the English language? Or, or whatever words, yeah. So when people say things, um, some things are more right than others. How can you be sure that one thing is... Or how can you teach the public to value that? I don't know. I think, I think this is sort of almost more, more of a, a tricky kind of sociology question than, um, you know, or like a... a, a almost political question, because I don't think anyone thinks I don't like true things. I don't want things, you know, to know things that are true. Um, I, think, I think we're all just, just coming into stuff with a lot of very different sets of assumptions. And, and sometimes it's e- easier to phrase those in terms of, well, these people are just saying things that aren't true, and that's the problem. They just need to value truth more. But I don't know that it's necessarily that they don't value truth more. It's more maybe they're starting with a, you know... They're starting with ideas that that are disconnected or wrong or have some some other other mismatch in in the way they're thinking about things. Um, but I think just telling them it's sort of like telling people, well, just you should be smarter or you should use common sense. That it's almost that way of framing things seems seems like it's doomed to be unproductive. Are you ner- you're nervous about measles vaccinations and climate change. Is that is that fair to say? Is that the kind of critical appraisal you're thinking of? Yeah. Yeah. What do you think, Marcus? I think that one of the troubles with science education is that we tend to present things as, as finished stories and, um, uh, and we're almost too scared to um, open up the possibility that there might be another story out there. And of course that's what we love as scientists is um, that uh, always looking for the, the fault in a theory to be able to, to move it on to another stage. So I, I, my kids are doing history, for example, where they learn this kind of critical appraisal. So they, they understand that texts are probably biased and they, they learn the skills to test the text to see what the bias might be and I, and I think that's one place where we need to bring that into science to give people the tools to be able to, to question um, well wh- when is this data actually um, uh, you know they've you see a graph, and the graph is actually misleading because they've, they've only shown you the very top bit and they haven't shown you the huge bit underneath. And, and so I think we, we don't really equip people with the skills to, to critically uh, analyze and question things. And that's why I think, well, you know, this kind of... Gove was very um, clever in a way with his kind of, like, don't trust the experts because um, I think, they were, you know, people just felt like, oh, I'm just being told things and I have to accept it. And we, they don't, haven't got the critical tools to be able to, to distinguish uh, different stories um, uh, w- when they come up. Yeah, it, 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 but this is, uh, this is also... It's really tricky. I don't. I don't um, there's a really interesting uh, uh, piece by uh, a researcher, uh, Dana Boyd, about media literacy and teaching people how to try to evaluate claims in the media because that's you know a problem that everyone's sort of 
grappling with um, right now. But but she sort of took an interesting interesting tack on this, where she she looked at like in practice, if you teach someone, you know, how to question and 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 do do their own research and look for their own sources, that it it how sure are we that 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 kind of teaching someone the scientific method necessarily helps them uh, uh, answer questions of their own. Because, because um, what, what, what she found were a lot of examples of people, what it meant was when someone told them something that they didn't, that they didn't like, like, you know, vaccines are safe or whatever, they would say, well, I'm going to go and look for multiple sources and, you know, research this. And they would just go and Google and, and then read down until they found something that contradicted that and be like, oh, well, this person makes a really good argument. I think the experts are wrong. You know? and what about the likability and relatability of scientists? Is that important? Well, I always uh, enjoy doing maths because the mathematics spoke for itself and I didn't have to... Um, uh, more than any other science where, you know, science, you, you never know actually whether the theory is correct and you have to... Um, kind of spend a lot of time um, uh, trying to support that theory. And if you look at physics blogs, they're full of vitriol and anger and people fighting. Maths blogs are not like that because the math speaks for itself. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to, you know, the, once your thing's proved, it's got, um, it's got a validity to it. So in a way, I chose maths because I, I, I wanted to, I, I didn't want to have to, to put my personality into it. But, but I think actually, what, of course, what I've learned is that um, uh, it, it is important when you're doing science communication that uh, we, we show that, you know, scientists are just members of society. We're, we're no different from... Uh, we, we have certain skills and other people have skills as well. So I think, um, I think that is important to show that we, we aren't some weird um, uh, kind of uh, people with... Uh, I've never worn a lab coat in my life. I mean, you know. Are there things that shouldn't be made uh, simple? Yeah, I, I, I would say that uh, no, I wouldn't say there are things. I think there are things which it might be impossible to make simple, uh, which I think is a slight... So, um, if that's true, then maybe those are, are things you shouldn't try and simplify because you will always lose um, the essence of the story. And, and I had one, a challenge uh, uh, with one of these uh, in the book, What We Cannot Know, because I wanted to try and explain quantum physics. And uh, My big problem with quantum physics was that it is... In essence, you have to use mathematics in order to be able to truly understand what it's saying. And it leads you, the mathematics leads you into these all very strange sort of uh, uh, conclusions. And when you try and translate it into natural language, um, you know, like, like you did, Randall, that, that um, it doesn't work. It doesn't translate. And that's why people go, that's just weird. What do you mean an electron doesn't have an momentum and a, and a position at the same time? It's in two places at the same time. Uh, and it's, I found when I was trying to explain that chapter that we do our best, but maybe that is something that if you truly want to understand quantum physics, as much as we all try at writing popular science books about it, the only way to truly um, uh, know what's going on is to stay in this um, complicated language of mathematics. Um, when, I, when I was thinking about what complicated things to illustrate in my book, um, one of the ones I, I was thinking, what, are, what, what things are there that have a lot of parts inside? We don't really know how they, people don't, you know, I don't understand how they work, or um, I think would be really interesting to show. Um, and one of, the, one of the first things that came up was, was like an old mechanical watch. You know, the, the kind that, that like, uh, I used to have a little timer that I had gotten from my grandfather that, you know, you could pop open the face and see a whole bunch of gears. And, and, and so I thought that would be a really fun thing to illustrate. Um, but what I found really quickly, before I even got to the point of, like, 
you know, talking to, to a watchmaker or something, just like reading, you know, like going down the list of all the parts, is that every part was like shaped in a certain way, and it was shaped in a certain way to make the nearby parts, you know, turn at the right speed or in the right direction or whatever, but that, and that, that if you put 50 of them together, it made a watch. But there wasn't, um, but like it, it the, mapping that to words wouldn't necessarily produce something that was easier to understand than a watch. <laughs> like that, <laughs> that um, it's, it worked because all the parts are shaped that way. If you shape them differently, it wouldn't work. But um, the, and the parts are shaped like that because that's the shape that works for what you want. You know, and it's a it's a lot like the clicking pen thing. Like like the mechanism is sort of. Uh, uh, you know, odd, three-dimensional, it's kind of hard, hard to draw even. It's not that complicated. Like, if you look at it, you can understand it. But there aren't necessarily words that are, that make it clearer. It's like, well, it's the thing that moves like this. I'll try and direct the mic, friends. Question number one. Question number two, can you, you've got one there. Okay, question number one. Uh, thanks to all of you for your input this evening. Randall, um, you're, you were talking earlier about um, simplifying things, and Every now and again, I go to XKCD and just can't understand it. And there's a lot of in-jokes. There's a lot of sci-fi references I don't get. So one of the things that's great is there's a wiki site called Explain XKCD, which runs in parallel, which is fantastic. Why don't you give us the answers on your site? Why does the community need to pitch in to give the, the real-world view? Lovely. Lovely. Hi. Um, so I'm also a physicist over here, and uh, I couldn't help but notice when you described your uh, scientific peers, you used the word he, and that's something that I've obviously become aware of being a woman in science. And I guess my question is, why do you think, even though girls perform as well as boys at the age of 16 at school in science, they then rapidly drop out? Um, why and what else can we do to do better? Lovely. And question number four. Randall, I tend to find XKCD wonderfully nerdy, although times there's been some that have found a lot of resonance outside, including the, um, the one you made on climate change and the one on radiation after Fukushima. Are you ever tempted to take up public education or kind of illustrate things that are going on more full-time? Just to say that, that like, I really I try to wait until I feel like I have something useful to say that's not being said by someone else, you know, or that that I figured out, a, oh, here's a way to explain this that I think is, you know, is better than, than the explanation that I've seen, or, you know, or I'm just really excited to share. And if I don't have that, I mean, I, 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 I don't know, I don't think I, I, I'm sort of hesitant to try to inject myself into everything. Um, um, for explanations, um, I don't know, I think, I think it's like, like people sometimes will assume from reading my comics, because I'll do a comic about this weird topic and that topic and that topic, and it's like, oh, uh, he must know about everything. And really, it's just like, those are the things that I happen to have read about that day. Um, you know, or, 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 and that, that no, no one will ever have a complete overlap, um, you know, with the things someone else knows. Like, there are always things you know that any other person doesn't know, and vice versa. Um, and, and so, um, I don't know, it, it, it feels a little bit self-centered to, you know, I don't know, in a way to, to, to try to be like, and by the way, here's a complete index to all the things that I've been thinking about lately and talking about. You know, I feel like that could never end if I, if I started doing that. So it's, it's nice that, that I guess people are, are 
are putting that together. Um, so now women in, women in science, and I noticed with the questions, I, can't, I thought I'd be able to point at people, but it's quite difficult to do. Can the questioners aim for a few women as well? Because so far we've, you, you were the first female questioner, I believe. Um, can, we, um, uh, can you speak to women in science and why they drop out? Well, I don't think they are dropping out. Um, my experience is that more and more we're getting a, 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 an equality in the departments. That um, And mathematics is probably the subject which has suffered most on this. Um, uh, you know, for example, first Fields Medal to go to a woman, you know, uh, just very, very recent. Um, and I think that uh, one of the things is having uh, very good role models. Um, and we're getting more and more good role models. So if you, if you come to the department um, in Oxford, um, we have, uh, as soon as you enter at the moment, we've got um, uh, massive great posters of all the women that do mathematics in our department, what they do. So we're celebrating uh, very much uh, what they do, trying to create good role models. Um, and and I, you know, it's, it's, when I did the story of maths, it was, a, a, it was an issue because when we went back through history, it was so male-dominated. And that, that is a problem, because you, I, I seem to be just telling stories of men doing science. So I do try and find... You know, at the moment, I'm doing a project um, where uh, uh, we're doing these tessellating chladni plates, where we vibrate these plates with sand on and create these amazing effects. And uh, we use it to tell the story of Sophie Germain, who um, uh, was the person who first answered, well, how on earth do you explain the extraordinary patterns that are, are going on on these plates? Um, so I think that really just helps to kind of normalise um, that, yeah, of course, it's um, uh, not really an issue. And that, that seems to, I think, is is the way forward. And do, do you feel like your, um, I mean, your, your comics reach a very wide audience, but there is within, even within the, the web-based scientific community, the Wikipedia editors, um, there is massive gender bias, even among things that should be very accessible. Do you feel like you have to reach, uh, do you work to reach a different audience or a broader audience or um, that you look for? I, I, I don't know, I didn't read... Um, um, uh, the thing explainer with, a, with kind of gender in mind but, but uh, did you write it with gender in mind? Um, yeah, I, I, well so I I, um, I mean I, I think that, that I do uh, yeah I, I do my best, I'm sorry by the way if I, if I said he that is something that I try to uh, try to be conscious of and avoid. Um, it might have been me. You know well, but um, what <laughs> I, I will, although I will, I will say when I'm talk, when I was talking about um, you know peers, kind of aggressively interrupting to say, well, actually, so and so, I'm talking about men there. Um, <laughs> but but um, you know I I, I I tried to be conscious. I had a couple of a, a number of conversations with my editors on the human body chapter uh, where I a page where I lobbied for for how to how to discuss that. Um, in a way that sort of separates the biology from the kind of social element, um, it, it, you know. And it's it's just a few par- a few labels, but you know, I, I tried to do the wording uh, carefully there. But um, for for this kind of broadly women in science, one thing that I the, the one place where one place where that sort of touches on what I talked about is is I've had women talk about the. That insecurity, when, when you come into a, a conversation with this insecurity in a sense, oh, these people know things and I'm not sure if I know things. And if you're a man, you just, it, it's a lot easier to say, okay, well, I feel entitled and I should know these things and so I'm going to barge ahead. 
And then women have a, a, a very different, you know, societal pressure saying, constantly pushing, pushing them to defend, um, you know, to, to say, well, maybe they've, you know, people have written about feeling like if I don't understand something, it, maybe it's that, maybe it's because I don't belong here, maybe it's because I'm different in some way, and that that uh, that kind of imposter syndrome is something that's that's really tough if you're if you're a woman or coming from any kind of a group where you feel already feel like you don't belong. Um, but then beyond that, I don't know. I think I think that to some extent I'm limited. You know, I, I do my best, but but. Um, you know, I'm, I'm limited in, what, in, in, in how much I can contribute to this. And so I try to, when I'm talking to people, when I'm, you know, referring to other experts to the extent that I do that, to just to, to point to women who, who have interesting things to say and, like, you know, amplify what, what they're saying. What's number one? Uh, what role, if any, have you found that humor plays in being able to explain things and make them more accessible to people? Fantastic. Poetry, humor... Uh, I can't see number three. Number four. What's, who's got number four? Let's say you're in a room with a five-year-old. How would you interest them in science? Lovely. And number three? Where is number three? Do you think there's a danger in explaining things as simply using the ten hundred words that you may come off as sort of pedantic, sort of like looking down on those you speak to? Do you, you view there's a danger in offending those you're trying to teach? Because sometimes if you talk to children like in a childish way, they may say, don't talk to me like that. You're making me sound like I'm a stupid idiot or something like that. That's a lovely, a lovely question. Lovely question. I mean, no. humour is, is, is your within, right within your wheelhouse. What, 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 uh, what um, led you there and what does it do for you? Well, uh, I mean, I, I just liked, uh, I like reading funny things. I don't really know why. But, um, but I, I do think that there's something to be said for, um, you know, they say that for any kind of talk, starting with a joke uh, is really helpful. And I think it's partly helpful because, because a joke really makes it clear that you and the listener are kind of on the same page about something in a way that, that, that other stuff, uh, that other you know, descriptions, that other ways of communicating might not. So it's like if you make a joke at the expense of something, someone who's like, I wasn't sure if, it, if, if we were laughing at that or if it was you know, solemn, or if it was, it's like, oh, okay, this is fine, we can relax, you know, and, and I think there's, and, and, um, and then, of course, if, there, if there's a joke, it makes people, once they've understood it, more likely to want to share it with other people, um, and so in that way, making things funny can really uh, help, help sort of make them spread on their own. I do lots of children's television, and, and I think you're also giving permission to fi find things enjoyable. But the humour is about pure pleasure. And then you can introduce... If we put in our fart jokes in our kids' show, we can do some very complex science, which gets us to... Which get, and I'm sort of serious about that. It's, it's strange, actually. Which gets us to the, the next couple of questions about, about language, about being patronising, about how would you engage a five-year-old. You must... Um, and I know that you have... Uh, you know, the audience is, is quite... has a big age range here. How, how would you engage a five-year-old? Well, it's interesting. I think um, we have quite contrasting styles of delivering um, our, our science to the public. And, and um, Randall's is very visual, but I love storytelling. So a lot of mine is about telling a story. And, uh, and what I think my teacher did um, uh, when he took me aside with the maths was to, to show me some really big stories. And 
Um, so for me, I think that we very often don't, uh, we, we, in maths especially, we, we tell all this technical stuff and we, we uh, kind of think, oh, no, but infinity is far too complicated an idea for um, you know, a kid to understand. So you only get that in a, th- a third year of your undergraduate course. So my thing is to really just say, no, the, um, it, it's, there's nothing kind of intrinsically technical about infinity, and actually, a five-year-old, of course, is immediately uh, you're obsessed with infinity. You're infa- you know, yeah. What you know? What's yeah. the biggest number? It's it's a question that every kid. Or is the universe? Does it just go on forever? And I think that um, uh, to feed those things with uh, uh, stories is is what I would. Do. I mean, infinity. I think is a terrific place to start. Yeah. Actually. For a five-year-old, because yeah, my son's it's just inevitable. obsessed with counting. Yeah. He just wants to see how high he can get, and it, it does keep him busy. Yeah, so this. Oh. Is hard to... <laughs> So my favourite maths joke is, um, uh, so the teacher asks the class, um, uh, so what's the biggest number? And, and a kid goes, 5,623. And she goes, well, what about 5,624? And the kid goes, oh, I was so close. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. You get nervous when someone says my favourite maths joke. You're like, oh, is this, is this where he's going to really I, die? I, I always use that joke. If nobody laughs, I realise I've really lost the audience. <laughs> lost, lost the crowd. But... I, I would say just in general, understand that uh, my advice is, and this is something that I've, I've tried to take to heart, is people, no matter their educational level, no matter you know, where they're coming from, everyone can sort of smell condescension. And they, they know when you're talking down to them. And so honestly, try not to do that. You know? and, and so like, w- with these words, I, I'm... When I pick this gimmick, it's sort of almost, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not writing this, you know, some people say that it's helpful for kids or people new to the language, and that's really cool, but w- who I'm writing this for is, is people my own age who I'm like, I'm playing this game. I'm going to say, I'm going to try to explain this in this, you know, in this kind of ridiculous way. I'm not saying I, I don't think you already know it. I'm saying I'm, this is how I would put it in, in these terms, and and maybe you'll be entertained by it, or maybe, maybe it will explain it to you, I don't know. Um, but I try not to... Um, you know, I, I do think you, that, that being able to gauge how you're going to come across to someone is... is I mean, I think it's, it's one of the hardest problems that, that people tackle. It's how to relate to other people. Um, you know, I, I, think, I think that's just about the hardest thing humans do. Um, and so... so so my advice is just if, if, if you really are being, you know, feeling condescending towards someone, they, they'll be able to tell. And so try to be nicer. <laughs> that... That's a lovely answer. <laughs> the, 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 um, I think you, you capture very beautifully there the, the sincerity of motive. And I must say both of you are enormous heroes of mine. Um, your, the projects that you both undertake have a wonderful generosity. A lot of science is about holding knowledge in and not sharing it and either making money or trying to win a prize or publish before someone else. Um, and a lot of life in general is about showing that you're better than somebody else. And both of you have a humble, generous um, approach, which I think avoids condescension and is, is, is extraordinary. It's been enormous fun for me sitting on stage with a pair of you. I'm sure that everyone else has had equally as much fun as I have. Please thank both our speakers very much
a little bit of um, a little bit. I, I hate to interrupt the applause because it's so well deserved. Thank you, Intelligence Squared. Thank you all.